0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus Fenstaden of Witz University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it's the first show of the new year, January 2017. And it's the month that a lot of us, well, some of us, not all of us have been waiting for. Because of course this is the month on January 20th, 2017 that Donald J. Trump will be inaugurated President of the United States. It's hard to imagine that this is where it's come to, uh, but it's brought us to a very important milestone in American history and America's relationship with the world. Because what we've seen in the run-up from the election to his, his uh, you know, his taking office very soon, imminently, is really a challenge to the international order, and that will have profound impact. On not only the United States relationship in Africa, but also the relationship between and among the United States, Africa and China. And I just think it's going to be absolutely fascinating because as much as we want to think we know what's going to happen, we absolutely have no idea.
1: One of the complications of China-Africa life and the China-Africa relationship is that China and the U.S. have, to a large extent, kind of defined themselves in Africa in comparison to each other, so, you know, kind of the U.S. has defined itself over the Obama administration, definitely, as the non-China, and China has defined itself as being different from the U.S. in lots of different ways, and both of them have tried to use that difference Uh, To appeal to africa in complicated ways now. I think the difference is all up in the air And we're not really sure what the difference between the two are going to be and how they're going to define their roles in the future
0: Yeah, that's it's really absolutely fascinating. So today what we wanted to do is try to get the view from washington about the u.s china africa relationship and how you know the, the changing relationship between the united states and china Will impact africa as well, and we're just so thrilled that we that you know, to have our guest today back again for the second time on our show, but it's very special this particular time. For those of you who don't know Janet Ohm, she is the research manager at the China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. She works alongside Deborah Brautigam. Many of you may know her. Uh, Carrie uh, is is probably one of the most well-known research groups in the China-Africa space. But Janet is really very special in, in other ways as well, in part because Um, She was one of a very select few this year who has won a Schwartzman Scholarship, and for those of you not familiar with the Schwartzman Scholarship, it really is the equivalent to the Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford in the United Kingdom, and it is one of the most prestigious scholarships to get. It's at, I think, Tsinghua University in Beijing. It is incredibly difficult, very, very competitive, and Janet will be going there in August. Uh, congratulations, Mazeltov, You know, Gongxi, and all the different ways to say, you know, congratulations on the Schwartzman.
2: Thank you so much, Eric.
0: It's really a pleasure to have you back on the show, and in part the reason why we are so excited is because you're in Washington D.C. now. You have been watching the political events unfold over the past 18 months that have led up to Donald Trump uh, taking office. this very soon in a few in a few short days. In uh, you know, on January 20th. You also hey. have time that you've spent in East Africa. You lived in China Correct. for a long time. You were at the Carnegie, uh, Tsinghua Center there. You're going back to China, so in many ways you are the perfect person to kind of talk to us about how you see the relationship among these three regions changing in this new uncertain era. What are your thoughts that you've been that, that have been going through you, and as you talk to Professor Braudigam, what's the narrative here that you're that
2: you're trying to put together? Right. Well, it's interesting that you say, um, you know, my time in these various places at these very, very um, quickly changing times. And I definitely think that there could be some drastic changes. Um, I think the main thing is that up until now, you know, back in 2009, when the trade um China surpassed the U.S. as Africa's top trade partner. I think that was kind of a pivoting point in terms of a lot of people in Washington starting to pay attention to China-Africa relations. Um, And since then, there's definitely been a narrative that's been built up um, where, you know, distinguishing U.S. foreign policy in Africa from the Chinese um, way of doing things. And uh, a lot of the time, China distinguishing itself based on its non-interference, right? And um, the U.S. uh, espousing more of these um, conditions when it engages economically. So I think definitely that narrative could change a bit. I think the main question is just how much that will change. Um, A lot of people here right now in Washington, there's still so much speculation uh, leading up to January 20th in terms of exactly what the new administration will look like, Um, just in terms of its domestic policy. And then, of course, it's foreign policy, And so uh, just the degree to which this might shift and what that would mean for Africans, I think that's still something we can debate. Um, So I think we'll have to see.
1: One of the, the um, themes that have come up uh, during the campaigns have been uh, hostility towards China as a trading partner um, and a lot of right. criticism about you know, kind of the impact of, of trade with China and outsourcing to China on the American workforce. Um, and there's also there's been talk of tariffs, there's been talk of a possible trade war. If the trade relationship between China and the U.S. becomes more tense, what do you think some of the fallout will be on Africa?
2: So any trade war that China brings um, or that the U.S. brings on China will definitely bring in Africa, too. The main reason is that the U.S. is not China's only export destination. Uh, Today, China exports to African consumers mostly manufactured products, machinery, electronics, automobiles, textiles. So China already has been engaging with a lot of African markets. Um, And so I think, if anything, if the U.S. decides to raise tariffs on Chinese goods coming in, um, China will have even more of an interest in investing in in growing markets in Africa, uh, facilitating that growing middle class across a lot of African countries so that its trade with Africa can continue. Um, Some estimates say the continent's middle class is up to 34 percent of the population. That's definitely significant. Um, And so I think that in that way, maybe even some of these African countries will benefit um, in terms of some of the tensions between U.S. and China in terms of trade. Yeah, but I, you, you can't
0: you can't kind of equate the Af- the rising African middle class with the even as beleaguered as the American middle class is, it's still significantly wealthier than the Amer- the African middle class. So any downturn right. in U.S. trade probably can't be made up by African consumers.
2: I think that's true that it can't be made up, but I think um, just exactly because of that, I think there might be more of a deliberate action on the part of um, some of these, uh, our Chinese counterparts in terms of wanting to um, make sure that those markets stay um, open for Chinese exports well, you know, in there's Africa.
0: There's been a lot of talk about how Chinese companies are using Africa as a backdoor into the United States because of AGOA which is the African Growth and Opportunity Mm. Act. So AGOA allows for free trade access from Africa into the US market. And there's been some criticism in Africa that Chinese companies are starting to use this. And I could imagine in a scenario, if Trump puts tariffs on Chinese products made in China, and if all of a sudden, you know, Ethiopia becomes a shoe manufacturing destination (laughs) as it is, that they could take advantage of Agoa and just shift some of the production there. And, you know, it would be hard, I think, politically for Trump to shut down trade with Africa because of Chinese products. Do you ever, you know, you and your colleagues at Cary kind of Think about that scenario, about how AGOA could be leveraged by the Chinese to get around any potential uh, trade sanctions.
2: Right. I mean, it's interesting to say that. I just want to bring up one thing. You were talking about shoe manufacturing in Ethiopia. Um, A lot of the, you know, discussions around China in the past, uh, you know, 18 months, like you said, um, have been focused on this idea that a lot of U.S. manufacturing jobs have moved to China due to lower wages. But now a lot of those jobs are offshoring from China to Africa as wages rise in China. So a lot of the, the Haji and Shu factor in Ethiopia, for example, um, is one example of that. And actually um, Ivanka Trump's apparel line, which is manufactured in China. There have actually been some headlines, um, some speculation that there were talks of it moving to Africa because of the lower wages. So. Um, I mean, that's like one interesting spin on this. In terms of AGOA, I think it's a lot, it's a little harder to say because definitely a lot of the discussions around uh, trade, this more protectionist view on trade. um, And so I'm not too optimistic that um, AGOA may stay at the same rate that it has, it may take a hit. And so I think it's still uncertain and it would be in our interest, but I think we have to wait and see what the administration decides.
1: One of the um, one of the complications, I think, of the Trump the coming Trump administration is that he sits on such a a complicated kind of uh, Republican base. You know, kind of where there's there's so many different Republican constituencies are are part of his base, um, including you know kind of some support from ev- evangelical groups, mm. some ex- 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 strong you know so strong kind of presence from the extraction industries in his in his cabinet um how do you see these different these different um groupings who a lot of them have uh, have some kind of leg in africa the evangelicals have strong engagement in africa mm. the extractionists mm-hmm. have a strong engagement in africa um how do you see that kind of those kind of power bases pulling his his approach to africa
2: that's really interesting i actually didn't think about some of those factions that you just mentioned it's it's difficult to say again because i feel like definitely during his presidency, Donald Trump will want to make sure that he keeps those co- constituents close. But uh, just knowing the uh, structure of a lot of the his predecessors, you know, Obama with Power Africa and um, Bush with PEPFAR, just the way that some of these initiatives have panned out, I just don't know how easy it would be for Donald Trump to change the way things have been working in D.C. for the past eight years.
0: Well, he's so, off to a pretty good start, I got to say. <laughs> I mean, you know. Right, right. I mean, but, you know, Copus, let me take a shot at that one, because there's been a lot of excitement in some parts of the extractive business in Africa over the appointment of, you know, the the, the current soon-to-be former head of Exxon a secretary of state and you know and this idea that maybe that that will strengthen you know what's been a declining us african oil business particularly with nigeria and the reason why i think that's a false hope is because one of the major constituencies that you raised of the trump coalition is the domestic extractive business in the United States, to get you know that drill baby drill, which is domestic oil business, the shale business, the North Dakota oil. So I don't necessarily think that that's going to benefit uh, Africa. And that will give, again, more running room, I think, for the Chinese oil majors to operate in Africa, because the markets will not be in the United States as they've been, because I think the, that he really wants to start, you know, do what he calls The America First principle, which is to first build a domestic oil industry uh, to kind of, you know, with oil prices down where they are, it's become unprofitable for most American shale drilling to go on. But now I think he wants to focus on that, and he's not going to focus on African extractive industries, which has been the bedrock of the U.S.-African trade relationship.
2: Right, and I think another aspect... Go ahead, sorry. Go ahead, Jen. Oh, no, I was just going to say another aspect of that is, um, for example, Power Africa emphasizes clean energy. A lot of those... Um, initiatives under that under Power Africa. So, given his stance on climate change and a lot of um, his uh, p- the people that he's picking for his cabinet um, in terms of some of these energy policies, I think definitely it's unlikely that Power Africa in particular may uh, continue in the way it has.
1: You know, kind of mentioning Power Africa, it's, it is. It was an interesting kind of hallmark of the Obama administration to link uh, progressive political causes with development, you know, and, and, in you know, there has been these kind of dust-ups, dustups, um, especially in East Africa, where there's, um, you know, there were the, the pipeline for development finance, there, there was some kind of interruptions there because of human rights issues. Um, and particularly one, one issue that I think drew a lot of press in Africa was the, the focus on LGBT rights um, for coming from the the Obama administration um, and in a lot of ways China have been um, you know defining themselves against that kind of approach in the US by by like playing up to their non-intervention policy um, saying like you you know gonna kind of we're only interested in financing infrastructure we're not interested in you know in dictating kind of local policy um, How do you see that kind of linking of development and human rights continuing under Trump? I mean, I'm not particularly optimistic about that approach in the future.
2: Right. Um, Well, definitely Trump's campaign drew a lot of attention uh, for what a lot of people saw as regressive views on human rights domestically. So if there's a drawback to some of these issues in the U.S., I, I think you'd be naive to think that that wouldn't happen abroad as well in terms of how we engage with certain African countries.
0: Kobus, you know, one... You know, one area where, you know, you talked about LGBT issues, you know, Trump has actually been quite progressive. I mean, he was way ahead of the pack to not make, you know, gay issues, you know, that big of a deal. And, you know, now.
1: But then his his appointments were horrific.
0: His appointments. I mean,
1: Mike Pence alone. is a a Mike
0: Pence is a nightmare for LGBT. But, you know, he's the president. Mike Pence isn't for all as far as we know. Um, so, um, so you may not see that the LGBT issues, you know, rise to the top the same way it did under a Bush administration, which was openly evangelical, it may just be a non-issue. And in that case, you know, President Kenyatta, who really resented Obama kind of commenting on gay rights in Kenya, or certainly in Uganda, where that's an issue, uh, they just, you know, maybe just, it falls off the agenda.
1: Well, you know, kind of. I mean, LGBT issues was, I think, was became a kind of a flashpoint in this particular thing because I think African elites assumed that they could effectively count on homophobia within Africa. You know, right. kind of, they they could effectively make that like, oh, look at these outrageous demands that are being put on us by the West. You know, kind of like, mm-hmm. we're, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, where where our, our very the kind of very bedrock of our culture is being threatened. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I mean, it also it also went to not only LGBT rights but also issues in relation to the free press, civil society, um, you know, kind of women's rights and so on. The the Obama administration linked all of those to development.
0: Well, I I hope, for one, that that, uh, Trump does continue to kind of raise the issues of LGBT issues, particularly in places like Uganda and Kenya, but uh, it's hard to tell. Go ahead, Janet, uh, let us know what you think.
2: Sure, I mean, I think you guys both raised a lot of good points just now, and I think that's the main thing, is that um, in terms of how... Any change in U.S. policy towards these African countries, I think definitely the Chinese reaction so far has been um, the, the U.S. is hypocritical. That yes, they talk about human rights in Africa and um, you know push for there has been push for LGBT rights or um, women's rights, these kind of things. But now there, I think there'll be even more of an incentive for Chinese counterparts to say, "Oh, those things aren't going so well in the U.S." So. Um, You know, that kind of hypocrisy definitely um, may weaken the U.S.'s um, soft power or uh, it's when it when it spouses these values in various African countries, um, it weakens their stance.
0: You know, for those of you who don't live in Washington, D.C., one of the kind of, you know, industry rags, the newspapers is called The Hill, and uh, it's a paper that everybody on Capitol Hill reads, and it's kind of an inside-the-beltway type of, uh, of of publication. And over the past couple months, since the election, there have been at least two columns that I've seen, uh, maybe more, arguing for Donald Trump to engage Africa as a way to check China's power around the world, that mm. this is a front in almost the the war against China or the coming war against China, that Africa is a front, and the way I see it is that you know these are kind of some of the African lobbyists who want to make sure that the United States doesn't retreat too much, so they're picking on the boogeyman that they think will generate the most attention. This is kind of like saying, you know, let's fight communism in Central America. And that's all of a sudden, you know, all of the White House goes, oh, no, we can't have communism in Central America. And then they, you know, in the 1980s, they throw everything down towards it. So I'm wondering if you think that there will be this movement to engage China in other parts of the world, whether it's in the Middle East or Africa, and if you think that will actually get any traction in Washington,
2: so you mean uh, who's to, trying to engage?
0: So, so that is to for the United States to engage, you know, the Chinese in Africa as a way to mm. stay engaged in Africa, to stop mm. the forward momentum of China in Africa
2: interesting. Um, you know i'm I'm not quite sure if I have a definite answer to that question, but I do think that. Until now, there has been such a um, this, you know, a lot of the talk has been around the stark difference between the U.S. and China in terms how how they engage with the rest of the world. Um, But I think that actually there might be some kind of room for a convergence now. Um, Like I said, a lot of these African countries, I think, will start to see that um, a lot of the concerns they had about China in terms of poor. environmental degradation or, um, not respecting local human rights laws, et cetera. Um, those kind of things are still issues in the U S as well, um, from the U S side as well. So I think that there might actually be in the view of some of these African countries, this idea that there's convergence, there isn't such a stark difference between the two models anymore. Um, and maybe that will provide room for some kind of more localized hybrid models of development where, um, these African countries say, "Oh, we have this way of doing things on our own, and now we're going to engage. We're going to have a little bit more agency in terms of how we decide to engage with China and the U.S. respectively."
1: Um, on, a, on a slightly wider um, wider view, um, you know, one one of the one of the powers of the U.S. over, over the decades has always been um, to inspire. You know, kind of, it, it's 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 big narrative mm. has always been a narrative of hope, um, and you know, not only hope to for people to move to the US and live the American dream, but also this kind of idea that if you follow a basic kind of US model of you know right. kind of combo of development and capitalism and human rights together, then you know, kind of, there is a way to reach this American kind of modernity. Um, now, it seems that China has a kind of a counter a counter narrative, which includes these kind of sweeping developments like One Belt, One Road. Mm. Um, like, how do you see the Trump administration kind of affecting the narrative of the U.S. In, in Africa compared to China's?
2: I think that definitely there is, in terms of One Belt, One Road, there's also other initiatives such as um, a lot of African students now being able to study in China on various scholarships. Or Confucius Institutes across African countries. Um, so I think that in terms of you know, there's definitely been a deliberate measure on the Chinese side in terms of um, this uh, model model of development and um, how to engage Africans in that. Um, I think that I know I don't know if there's going to be some kind of uh, narrative that's going to change. Again, I think that it will kind of push some African countries towards China a little bit more just because um, of this idea of American hypocrisy. I think that's kind of the biggest narrative that would come out of this.
0: Maybe, Kobus, we've been yeah. looking at this the wrong way, though. Maybe, let me just play devil's advocate here, you know, that the United, you know, Trump for, you know, for all his flaws that I, that you and I clearly share, and I'm assuming, other people believe this as well, you know. Janet, I won't speak for you, but I assume that that's where you <laughs> kind of you land, um, you know. But you know, you know, one of the things that he says is that America is a mess. We shouldn't be bothering other people. We got to get our own house in order first. And and maybe we'll stop with the preaching on human rights. And you know when Hillary Clinton and uh, and Johnny Carson, the former assistant secretary of state, used to go over to Africa and used to rail against the Chinese, implying that the Americans were the better partner. And maybe that moralism will stop under Trump. Maybe. I'm just mm. projecting here. And what we're seeing in the United States is the fusion of corporate power and state power, which, of course, is the Chinese model in many ways. And so we might see Exxon and the U.S. government partner up even more than they already do. And just the same way that, you know, CNUC, the Chinese national oil company, partners up with the state because it's a state entity and they go out abroad. And in some ways, there may be a convergence of how we do things in this world. I'm just putting it out there, Cobus, as that it may not all be this nightmarish, horrific type of story that the United States retreating from kind of meddling in other countries' affairs and kind of preaching down to people, telling them what they're doing wrong. I mean, for me, the irony, I live in a communist authoritarian country. uh, And when the United States kind of lectures Vietnamese on human rights and, you know, a lot of my workers turn around and go like, well, wait a minute, you have a quarter of the world's prisoners you have 15, 20 people in jail cells that are meant for four. You have homeless people all over San Francisco, L.A., and New York. I mean, there are clear human rights violations in the United States. And I think Trump in some ways is speaking to that to say we need to take care of America first before we start lecturing to the other parts of the world. Cobus, do you think there's a scenario where actually things get better because this moralism may actually be put to the side for a change?
1: You know, there's this kind of preaching about human rights frequently gets very bad press in Africa, um, and it is frequently seen as part of some kind of like expansionist agenda by the U.S. So I can only imagine that, you know, kind of that that retreating from that, you know, kind of might well, uh, you know, kind of might well ease relationships between Africa and the U.S., Um, However, I don't necessarily see that that would necessarily improve life in Africa. You know, it's it, I can see that that, that it might well, um, you know, kind of create kind of comfort zones for people, for authoritarian rulers. Um, it's it's a very difficult yeah. question for me to answer. Um, what, what, I, I, you know, kind of what I do think um, is that in lots of ways, Africa... Should not be ignored by Americans as you know, kind of as examples of certain tendencies that are becoming apparent in the U.S. Um, one is. This kind of tendency, are both to fuse, uh, to fuse corporate and, and and state power, for corporates to kind of infiltrate this, the the architecture of the state, and then also for presidential family members to take on important mm. kind of dual corporate and policy roles. Africa has a lot to teach there, and, and <laughs> not of it, not a lot of it is very optimistic.
0: Janet, let's um, let's close our discussion. You are going in 2017 to Beijing. You've been at the China-Africa Research Institute. You've been keeping an eye on what's happening in Africa. When you get to China later this year in August to start your Schwartzman scholarship, what are you going to be thinking about in terms of the U.S.-China-Africa relationship now that you're going to be looking at it from the point of view uh, from this side of the world?
2: I think about this quite often, actually. Um, It'll definitely be an interesting time to be there. I think I'm most interested in when I go to China, I'll be there for at least one year. Uh, I just think it'll be refreshing to see how all of this is panning out from Beijing, um, both in terms of expats that, American expats that are there and what some of their views might be, but also um, exactly, you know, Chinese academics or um, maybe some of my Chinese classmates at Tsinghua, um, some who may have spent some time in the U.S. studying, for example. Um, I think I just want to kind of understand what their views are. Um, since I will be there. And, you know, I'll continue to think a little bit more about what um, this tension might mean for the next administration might mean for uh, U.S.-China relations elsewhere, for example, in Africa.
0: Well, we can't wait to talk with you once you're in Beijing, because I think we'll get a very different uh, story at that point. And we will be six or seven months into the Trump presidency by that time. So we may have an indication of which right. direction things are going. Doesn't that sound scary? Right. Six or seven months into the Trump <laughs> presidency?
2: God, we'll see I, how quickly our predictions. During I know. This podcast it's have terrifying.
0: Uh Janet Ohm is the research manager at the China Africa Research Initiative at the Paul H. Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, soon to be departing from Johns Hopkins to go to Beijing, to Tsinghua University, where she is recently awarded a Schwarzman Scholarship. And uh, we are just thrilled to have you back on the show and cannot wait to talk with you later in the year when you are in Beijing. Congratulations again on the Schwarzman. It's a it's a tremendous accomplishment.
2: Thank you so much, Kobus and Eric.
0: For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.